hello and welcome to another episode of the Southside Trap Podcast. The podcast that helps you stay outside with the Chicago Red Stars. It's your girl, Sandra. Here today with a special edition episode and we're really excited because we always love when we have guests to chat with about Chicago Red Stars. So, uh, of course, I'm here today with my friend, homie, and colleague, Claire Watkins, a.k.a. The Scam Originator. How are you doing today, Claire? I'm good. I'm very excited to talk soccer stuff this week. Let's do it. I'm excited, too. We are joined today by Chicago Red Stars head coach and friend of the pod, Rory Dames. How are you doing today, Rory? I'm good. How are you guys? Excited. We're, uh, you know, we have a, a little bit of a different vibe going into expansion draft week than maybe some other people who have to cover other teams. We're excited to just kind of be spectators and maybe dive into a little bit of like what it could mean for other teams. Um, and we wanted to bring you on to the podcast to maybe share in that dialogue as well surrounding the upcoming expansion draft. But first, we wanted to hit the rewind button a little bit and, uh, build up into that and maybe chat a little bit about uh, the Red Stars 2020 and kind of how that looked. I guess we could start with kind of the, the, you know, the Challenge Cup final specifically, kind of the vibes out of there. Uh, Maybe walk us through some of the expectations versus the reality of how the Challenge Cup sort of went with you guys. I know we had talked a bit before you guys had departed to Utah and uh, how you were going to be utilizing some of those games. And then all of a sudden you guys found yourself, in a Challenge Cup final. So maybe uh, talk to me a little bit about sort of those expectations versus the uh, the initial reality that, that was the Challenge Cup. I think that we had a good plan going into it with how we were going to manage our group. I mean, again, that, that late schedule change. We had talked about having everything scripted and we thought that's what we would do. And then when that late schedule change came, it was like, all right, well, now we have to, right, for the the safety of the players. um, This is what we'll do. And, again, not to be repetitive, but there were pretty much three main things we set out to do. One was uh, to build them up over the first three games and use it as a preseason. Two is to be able to get assessments on players, uh, players like Hannah and Kayla, who we'd had for a year, um, trained, playing some preseason games, but hadn't gotten real live action, two good examples of that, let alone some of the younger players we'd brought in. And then three was, you know, when we got to that fourth game, we would uh, treat it like a, a real game. And, you know, it's always glass half full, glass half empty. People take that. It doesn't mean that we didn't treat the other games as quote-unquote real games. But, you know, we obviously wanted to win all the games we played in. But I wouldn't say that our end-all be-all in those first three games was winning as much as player rotation and building fitness bases and evaluations. So we got to the fourth game. I thought it was a good outing. Um, I think we would have been okay with playing five and coming home. Uh, we played seven. I think we, uh, due to some of the injuries that we did take, it allowed us to see players probably get more minutes and meaningful games than we'd had anticipated, uh, which I think is a good thing for us. You know, probably not when we were stuck in the bubble, but in hindsight, a little less emotional with all of it, it was probably a good thing for us. Um, you know, the final, whenever you get a chance to play in finals, it's a good thing. Um, we may said all along that winning the Challenge Cup was by no means our end-all be-all, but once you're in the final, you might as well try to win the thing. So I think the there was certainly a letdown. You know, it's, we'd be naive if we didn't think that emotionally – 
having Katie be on their team and Kaylee on our team, that that didn't exist. You know, I said after the game, was, if there was any solace in it, knowing somebody like Katie, who's a good player and a great person, was able to experience that. You know, I was happy for her. Um, felt bad for Kay, although she handled it like a professional like you would expect her to. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the game was disappointing. You, you can't give away a penalty like that. Um, I think Kayla knows that. I think that's why Kayla's been gone. You know, Kayla's playing overseas. Um, she may go play overseas a little bit more when this season, this part of the season ends for her. I mean, she's turned a, a negative into a positive for herself, and she'll grow from it. Uh, I think we were a bit disappointed. We had planned on having Casey back. Um, we actually didn't know that we weren't going to have Casey back until probably about an hour before the game. So... There was a little bit of a point of contention there of who was in charge of that decision or who was making that decision. Have Casey in there. You know, I think if Kay, I mean, regardless of all the players we had out, I think if Casey plays, the game's probably a little different. Uh, but I was proud of the group. You know, you give away a penalty kick early. I'm not going to say it wasn't a foul, but I'm going to say there were certainly worse fouls throughout the tournament in the box that weren't called. Uh, so disappointing that that's the first penalty kick of the of the entire event. Um, but I thought we chased chased the game the best we could. We had a lot of tired players physically, emotionally. We had a lot of people ready to go home. So going down right at the beginning of that was hard. Um, a little bit unlucky with Sav's header. Uh, but Houston's also a team that is set up to sit in the block and let you come into their end of it and play in the transition this year. So it also made it hard that we were able to get high up onto them and territorially be in some dangerous spots, but not really create anything dangerous, but then have to deal with them breaking out time after time after time. And, you know, credit to, to Shay, good run on her part, good finish. Um, I think we were in two in the back at that point. So we'll learn from it. We'll go forwards. Uh, but yeah, disappointing to lose, disappointing to get to another final and let all the people here down a bit. But for what we went there to do and what our objectives were at the beginning of the event, I think we overachieved. So I know that was a little long-winded, but I felt like it was important to give the whole perspective on it. So we were disappointed to lose, for sure. Um, but we felt really good about what we went there to do and what we were able to get done. Yeah, I mean, it seems like Chicago, for you guys, were in the forefront of steering some of that conversation around the challenge cup of like what is this for exactly and some teams came in saying you know we're set up to win and we want to win you know teams like Chicago it was a lot more about player evaluation which I think is the interesting kind of dialogue around it as we talk about it seems like there was even though obviously perhaps in less difficult circumstances a desire to do this again maybe in the future to help make teams deeper and get some different players some more time um, is that something that, that you would like to see? Would you like to see another Challenge Cup in, in a more regular league year? Yeah, I think every – I mean, so I think we have to be careful with how we phrase that. I <laughs> yeah. think everybody would like to have another competition sure. outside of the league that you compete in and another opportunity to develop players in. Uh, I don't know that anybody would want to have another Challenge Cup where you have to go be isolated in a bubble for 30 days. Um, I don't think anybody left their feeling like, hey, this is good. I want to do this again. But I do think people left seeing a lot of value in the event and going into a regular season where every point in the table matters. You know, having a competition like that, I think, allows you to, to get minutes for players that normally don't. 
to bring players back that are coming back from injury to build up minutes where it's really hard to do in a regular season um, makes more sense to be able to justify having a larger roster and carrying more players. And I think just creates an environment where, and again, I'll be careful with how I say this because we don't have issues with it in Chicago, um, but it's hard to keep players motivated and train day in, day out if they don't ever see a chance to actually get onto the field and perform. And, you know, I think that's a huge carrot to put in front of people. And if players can then come into that kind of setting, regardless if it's a, you play over all the FIFA breaks or whenever you, you have a tournament, some players go there, start to find some form, start to have some confidence. And that's a huge stepping stone for them to be able to get minutes in the league games. So I think everybody left their feeling that there's definitely value to having that kind of a competition. Um, but I don't think anybody would want to have it the way we had it necessarily. You know, the success around the Challenge Cup obviously opened the, the door to there potentially being more games, right? Um, we saw that kind of conversation happening with MLS when they were going through their MLS's back tournament and then kind of having those conversations about, okay, what kind of happens next? There's still a chunk of calendar year left. And then the the league went ahead and, um, you know, announced the, the fall series and it looked and felt a little bit different from the Challenge Cup. You know, with this time, all nine clubs were able to participate versus the eight clubs initially. And um, they were all divided up into regional pods and, and Chicago Red Stars were, were divvied up with, with Washington Spirit and uh, Sky Blue FC. What was, uh, what was some of the preparation for, for fall series? Like, how did that differ uh, from preparing for something like Challenge Cup? And what were some of the similar things that you guys were trying to keep going and, and building on from Challenge Cup to fall series? Well, the Challenge Cup was sold to us as the big thing we were gonna do in the year, and more than likely the only thing we were gonna do in the year. So if we would add the team that we had two years ago, then our approach to the Challenge Cup would have been completely different than what it was this year. Uh, but we had a lot of turnover, we had to replace players. So the, the mindset and mentality that we went into was a little bit different. There were certainly some teams that went into the Challenge Cup. Uh, North Carolina is a great example, right? Who had their whole group back. You know, it's not like they were reventing the wheel in, in year four or five. So for a team like that to come and say, hey, we're coming here to win, made a lot of sense. Um, I think when you got to the fall series, that kind of got dropped on a slate. Obviously, we had committed and other teams had committed the players to being able to go out on loan at that point. Um, so I, I think the fall series for a lot of the teams was a scramble just to get enough people to be able to, to play the games on the front side. Um, and then try to have a plan. I mean, we got Casey and, and Tierna minutes, you know, in the fourth game. And granted, neither one of them were, were in form or what I say were great in that game. Three straight balls behind us led to goals. But it was more important for us to actually get them minutes and give them something they could build off of than it was to maybe put the back four that was in the best rhythm or flow at that point together. Um, for us, the fall series – it gave us an opportunity to to continue to work on the attack. You know, we left Utah talking about Kalia potentially playing in the nine spot sometimes and curious to see what that would look like. Uh, the fall series gave us an opportunity to actually see what it would look like. Um, it allowed Morgan, Danny, and Vanessa to actually finally get healthy 
and if you guys are by wood, knock on wood. But, you know, I mean, Vanessa and Danny both kind of labored through the, the Challenge Cup, and we're warriors for the team for sure. Um, but by we're no means at 100% and healthy and fluid and doing the things that they're good at. So it was good to see those guys, those three, get played back in. Um, gave us Sarah Lubert, Zoe Morris, Bianca St. George, um, opportunities to, to continue to work with those guys and get them some more minutes and to see what they could do. So the, the fall series for us, you know, the Challenge Cup I think was a little bit nerve-wracking for everybody because we were first, and you don't know what you don't know. We knew nothing. And if this happened, how do you deal with it? Or if this happens, how do you deal with it? Because there was nothing to go off of from any of the other leagues. I think the fall series was a little bit more laid back because people's anxiety was a little bit lower. Um, you weren't, you were playing for something, but you weren't playing for something since none of the, the stats or data from any of the games counted. Um, but you were certainly playing for a local organization that you were supporting. Uh, but the biggest thing for us was just to continue to try to get better, continue to try to expand the assessment of players, continue to try to play some of our more influential players back in from a health standpoint and piece together still what we think we're going to look like next year when we want to be at our best. Yeah, it definitely seemed like in the fall series, just from our standpoint, and it's also different too because Sandra and I got to actually watch a couple of the games live, which is really useful for kind of seeing the vision a little bit better than watching it on, on a stream, but um, the, the front six concept, I mean, not only is the midfield healthy, but it seemed like they were taking on much more attacking roles in, in certain games in the fall series. And I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit, because it, this seems like the direction of the, you know, very different from 2019 um, kind of attacking by committee and how you think that went particularly in those fall series games. Yeah. Well, I think the, again, there, there really just was not a lot of time before Utah to do much. So, you know, I think Utah, our setup was more on the back foot and more defensive minded. And how do we stay organized and what blocks can we play in? I think the first game we came out of more of attack minded organ setup. Uh, we, you know, we had one, one six and two tens and wanted to push higher and play. And then literally by the time we got to the third game, we'd already had people hurt. So at that game, we kind of went more with, Vanessa and Danny sitting lower in a block and defending with our four. We felt that the back six and Alyssa was the backbone of the group there. And if um, we want to if we want to uh, evaluate Zoe or evaluate Bianca, that putting them into those groups would be the best way to do it. So I would say we played a little bit more in defending them on the break than we did of trying to really be on the front foot and dictate the game. I think in the fall series. Uh, you know, again, Morgan, Vanessa, Danny, healthy. Morgan, Vanessa, Danny can run. Morgan, Vanessa, Danny can cover more ground. It's easier to get your midfielders higher up the field if they're physically able to run up the field. So getting a little bit more ideas between Sarah Lubert and Kay. Um, we had Sav kind of cheating in more as a, an inverted seven and kind of being another 10 in that space with Vanessa. The one game uh sky blue at home we told vanessa to, to stay up high with kalia and stay connected to her uh, and that was we scored that was where we scored uh some goals in that game but like we we disconnected our two sixes and our 10 a bit more and left a bigger gap in there uh i think the the first washington game i thought the we were playing great and had a really good rhythm up until we took the red card 
And then at that point, it became literally about survival, just from a fitness standpoint, to to have to play 60 minutes down a player. Uh, I think we had two players on the bench that could actually go into that game. So it literally just, I mean, again, disappointing to concede two goals late and all that. I get it. But we got out of there with nobody getting hurt. That was the most important thing. So I think it kind of varied game by game. Um, but I do think out of the fall series, we have a much better idea of what we're going to look like, how we want to play, and the pieces that we're missing and we need to go get before next year starts. I think uh, it's, a, it's an important note there that you mentioned about the health aspect, right, coming into play for fall series and being able to see uh, that midfield specifically, be able to kind of play the roles that they were playing and kind of uh, really kind of show – the stuff that you guys have been working on and seeing that all kind of come to fruition in, in small ways, right? I guess in the smallest ways that you can in a year like 2020. Um, but to, to speak a little bit on, and you mentioned a couple of these players already, but to speak a little bit about on just sort of the general outlook on kind of the, the rookies and, and first year players, um, some of the newbies that had their roles in uh, kind of become of a little bit more significance and of a little bit more importance during 2020. And we saw a little bit of it in Challenge Cup, but uh, Fall Series obviously provided a, an, a, an extended platform for that. I mean, we got to see some really great stuff out of a player like uh, Zoe Morse and uh, more games for Bianca St. George's. And, um, you know, having the opportunity to train within the team and, and then you guys announcing, uh, you know, uh, a, a later signing of somebody like Ella Stevens, I guess, sort of seeing what she's been bringing out of trainings. If you can maybe speak a bit upon um, what you've been seeing out of kind of this rookie class that you've been working with and uh, the first year Red Stars. Yeah, I mean, I think they all got better. You know, I would put Sarah Lubert in that mix too. Um, I think they all improved. And, you know, in Ariel, from where she started with us to where she finished with us night and day. So I, I think that whole group, um, grew. And again, the, <laughs> you can't describe the year, but it certainly brought people together, right? Cause you needed, you needed somebody else, at least one other person to be able to get through it. And I think that rookie group really kind of bonded together. I mean, those guys are all pretty close now. Um, so I get asked all the time of, well, how can you really tell though how good they were? Because nobody was really at full strength and you weren't really playing against, you know, NWSL like for like. And I think the simple thing is, is well, that's true, but that has nothing to do with their ability to pick up um, tactics or movements or principles of what we're trying to do. You know, will they need to be able to execute those things at a, a faster pace and a higher level when we're in the regular season? Of course. But there's also something to be said for actually understanding the principles that you're trying to play with and the fluidity of what you want the movements to be. And if this person's in this channel, you need to cover this channel. If this person's in this scene, you need to get to this scene. And that was a lot of the stuff that we were not able to get to before we went to Utah that we were able to, to really get into some depth in, in the fall series. So, you know, Ella, Ella is a completely different kind of midfielder than what we have. You know, Ella's a true out and out 10 and can also play as a nine, which a lot of people probably don't know. She's very good back to goal. She's very good in the box. She's very good out of the air, uh, very good in possession. Uh, Sarah's ability to, to break people down in wide spaces. Um, she's two-footed. She's got a little, a little hesitation move when she gets into the final third that I haven't seen anybody be able to defend yet. Um, I think she's probably got to clean it up a bit. But her, her feet and her ability to – 
in tight spaces, separate, and then deliver a ball or cut in and get a shot off or different. She can play the 9, the 7, the 11, or she can play in a two front. So she's got a lot of versatility. Um, you know, I thought Bianca had a great challenge cup. Uh, I think the grind of uh, a season and her body starting to push back on her a bit since she basically hadn't played in two years, caught up with her a bit in the fall series. Um, one of the reasons why we, we sat her down in the, the third game to kind of let her physically recover a bit. So I think you can see her upside and you can see her potential. The semifinal of the Challenge Cup, you know, she was easily the player of the match. You're, when you're right back, is your most dangerous attacking player. You can have a lot of conversations about that, but the positive one would be it says a lot about Bianca and, and where she's at and where she can go. Um, she actually was called into the Canadian national team camp that was supposed to happen. So that was great for her. And then they ended up canceling the camp, but the improvements she's made and the work that she's done isn't uh, going unnoticed. And I think that's the big thing for her. And I don't think people really understand how hard her journey was and the injury she had to overcome to get out of that last year from West Virginia and then be able to get onto the field for us. Uh, so I think she's got a huge ceiling. I mean, she's just scratching the surface of what she can be. And Zoe Morris, you know, Zoe, uh, Zoe reminds me of Katie, not in a lot of ways. You know, she's not flashy, um, but she doesn't make a lot of mistakes. You know, she's just a good, solid center back. Um, one or two areas where she can improve that we've gone over with her, but really good in possession, really smart with the line, strong 1v1 defending, um, reads the game well. And, I mean, she's never going to be somebody that's like a – you know, she's not going to stand out like a Sarah because somebody gets behind you and has a 20-yard head start, and then Sarah catches her in 30 yards. But she's just somebody that's going to go about her business and play, and a lot of times you're not going to notice her. And you're not going to, that's a good thing because usually when a defender gets noticed, it's because they did something bad and it led to a goal. And she doesn't, uh, she doesn't make a lot of mistakes. So she can clean up the one or two areas that, that we want to improve her upon and continue to be as consistent and as solid as she is, she's going to be a really good NWSL center back. So that seems like a good enough place to kind of close the book as of right now on the games in 2020, um, because things pivoted very quickly to some very fast off-season activity. The expansion draft was announced. I think they announced it to a date that is before the actual final was supposed to be played. So I think they moved that up a little bit. Um, First things first, we're going to start, we're going to start with this. Cause I think this is what maybe the red stars fans are interested in. And, um, and then we'll start talking some X's and O's, but so you've gone through this before, um, dispersal drafts, um, expansion drafts. What does it feel like to be the GM of a close knit group and having to go through this process? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I feel like if I was just a GM and not the coach and I didn't see the players every day and work with the players every day, um, it might be a little easier. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it's pro sports and it's a business and it is what it is, but I can't say that's ever the culture we've really created or how we've ever really built our teams. Um, you know, and the, the group is tight, you know, so there, there's no player that you move. That's easy. You know, it wasn't easy to send Michelle back to Utah. You know, I mean, Michelle's got a huge upside. I think Michelle's going to be a really good player in this league. Um, but it was best for Michelle and Pedro and Scarlett to, to go be my family and have that help and for Scarlett to be around her grandparents. So we made the move. Um, 
So those moves, although are hard, at least you feel good about in the end because, you know, you're, you're helping somebody with life, which is bigger than soccer. Um, you know, when you're making moves for the expansion drafts and who do you keep and who do you not keep and who do you protect and who do you trade? There's, there's nothing easy about that. You know, coaches, GMs are all people too. (laughs) They all have feelings and emotions. Um, but you have to try to put all those to the side and be as unemotional as possible, have a clear path in your head and a clear vision in your head of where you want to go and how you're going to get there and what it looks like. And then you have to make the decisions from that mindset and not, not how much you like this player or how good of a person this player is or how connected to the city this person is and those things. So um, never easy. But you make the decisions that you think are best for your group as a whole, and that can get you to where you want to go, and then you go with them. It's also interesting, I think, probably going into – this is part of the bigger discussion of the Challenge Cup and and the fall draft – or sorry, the fall series going into the draft. Uh, This idea of this extended player evaluation that Louisville got to watch or any teams who are looking at expansion got to watch. And, but also you got, you got limited and also an interesting kind of amount of time with the players. And you had some players who were not in the fall series or did not participate in the challenge cup. How does that affect this process in both? I would think both positive and probably negative ways. Yeah, so for us, I mean, we didn't have anybody not participate in the Challenge Cup, and the only person who opted out of the fall series was Julie, um, which we fully supported. So it, it didn't impact us at all. I mean, I think if you look at some of the other teams in the league and you look at who's protected and who's not protected, uh, I would say it certainly did impact some other teams' decisions, um, but it certainly didn't impact ours. You know, we have a, a great group of women on our team, who are committed to the club, committed to each other, and committed to the city. Um, I thought the way that they handled making the decisions if they were going to go to Utah, not go to Utah, what the safety precautions they felt they needed for Utah, the fall series, are we going to do it, are we going to not do it, you know, the commercial flights, the hotels. I mean, the way our leadership group handled all of that stuff was great. Um, so I don't think that those kinds of emotions play into our decisions. You know, there was nobody in our team who we were thinking, Hey, you know, maybe we can move her on or it might be time for her to go or she didn't do this. So she's not committed to the team. Um, It's just not our culture. You know, it's not who we are. It's not who our players are. So when it comes to our team specifically, you know, none of our decisions were made off any of those things. Um, but I do think if you look through the list and who's exposed and who's not exposed, it, it certainly did for some others. Rory, your, your experience <clears throat> having gone through so many different drafts, whether they were, the, you know, the expansion drafts with Houston and Orlando or even something like the numerous college drafts that the rest of us have, have had to gone through. Uh, maybe it's a stretch to ask you this, but I'm, I'm curious – um, if you could just walk us through like the the strategy of a of a GM or even a, just as a head coach going through <sighs> how do you think somebody like Christy Holly, someone who is not unfamiliar with the league and how it operates and its players, right? How is somebody like him going to be approaching um this expansion draft? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean I think if if you're the expansion team uh, I think Christy, since he does have experience in the league and he knows what you need to be successful in the league 
and he's also at a club who has um, good financial back backing, world class facility being built for training, have a great stadium. Um, I think he he probably has him James. Um, I don't know if they've announced the rest of their staff, so I won't say any other names, but I think they have a pretty good idea of how they want to go about doing it. Um, but I also think resources play into that. So if you can build your team through the international market, if you can build your team through um, using allocation money to bring players in and maybe take a player that didn't want to leave but be able to pay them more money to go there, I think those things will always play into it. Um, if, if I was Louisville, I would certainly be looking for players who I thought could be impactful in the league. I'd be looking for players who actually were, were okay coming to my team. Um, you know, I'd said that a few weeks ago before our trade went through. That's the hardest thing with uh, an expansion draft is if you take somebody out of the market who doesn't want to leave. And the bigger the personality of that player the bigger the repercussions that are going to be on the back end, it's really hard to, to start a new team and start a new franchise like that. You need to bring people in who are bought into your vision, believe in what you believe, want to be a part of what you're going to build and, and want to help lay that core foundation of what your team's going to be and what your culture is going to be. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing Christie's going to have to work through. I mean, there's obviously some enticing names on that sheet that you could potentially bring in, but do they come? Do they not come? Do they leave the league? If they do come, what do you get out of them? Um, so I think I think it'll be interesting to see how he goes about it. You know, obviously with Yuki and Savannah, he got two really good players and two really good people um, who will help him do what he wants to do down there and certainly won't be negative or counterproductive to how he wants to build the team and will be big pieces of who they are and what they're going to be. Uh, so I think he's off to a, a good start there. Um, disappointing for us, good for him. But it'll be interesting to see how he how he lays it out. I think it's also important to remember that his responsibility with U.S. soccer was one of the top scouts uh, in Europe. So he's probably one of the more versed people in the league of sleepers that could be in Europe that maybe some people haven't seen, but if he's been scouting Spain and Norway and Sweden and Switzerland and Holland, and those were the teams he was responsible for. He obviously doesn't know just who the players on their current national team are, but he knows who their twenties were, their 17s are, who's coming through their systems. Um, and I would expect him to, to land some pretty good internationals and, you know, internationals in this league don't always equate to being successful in this league. But I think that's where Christie has a big advantage is he knows what kind of internationals can have success in this league. Um, they have the financial means to bring those players in and sign them. And, you know, again, if you get the right ones that want to come to the States and be a part of the league, you know, he could build something really good and really special really quick there. Um, in terms of, you know, your guys' <clears throat> approach in kind of ripping the Band-Aid off, this is the first time we've had a team – completely openly trade for um, expansion draft immunity. Now that, you know, that happened last week, I think it's been a week now. Um, what do, feels like the benefits of getting that over with? And now that the dust has, has settled, do you have, what's your thought on doing it the way you guys did it versus putting the lists out and, and kind of waiting? Yeah. I mean, the only benefit is, is that, the emotional wounds that come with it 
have already happened and the, the shock and awe and the disappointment and everything that plays into that people have had time to, to deal with and go. So, you know, the other teams are all coming up on that. Players are coming up on that. Um, I think the big thing for us having that done two weeks ago allows us to now go forwards knowing exactly what we have, um, trying to bring in exactly what we think we need. And then, you know, talking about other potential trades, potential moves of the draft, potential internationals, you know, you kind of get stuck on hold until you know who you're going to keep and who you're going to lose. Cause you know, if you lose the wrong player in the expansion draft, that now come creates a brand new hole that you have to go fill. So the unknown of that, a lot of teams won't be able to even attempt to fill those holes until after the draft takes place. So I feel like we got a two week head start on some things. Um, but two weeks isn't a lot in this league. I would say the biggest thing is just going through the, the emotional toll that comes with it and trying to deal with it, put it behind and move on. I think maybe that's, that is probably one of the bigger benefits or, or silver linings, so to speak. It, it's been interesting watching um, all of the energy surrounding the expansion draft kind of stemming from those unprotected list for drops to to now where this is going to be kicking off on, on Thursday and people are going to find out, you know, if their team is going to look a little different and if they're going to be seeing some pieces, um, you know, real maybe building blocks too, right, that you're seeing for a lot of teams that have been um, in the works of some things. I was just uh, curious if, if you – had a chance to maybe take a look at any of those lists and if, if maybe any of those were some head scratchers for you? Uh, I, I have seen the list. Um, and I guess that's probably the other thing I should have added to Claire's question, but that's the other thing, you know, once that list comes out, it, it doesn't, you could have the best reasoning for what you did and the best intentions of how you did it, but you know, there's still emotions involved. You're still dealing with people, you know, and the, the people that turn up not protected on that list, it's going to have an impact on them. I mean, it's, it's unreasonable to think that it wouldn't. So maybe not having to put out a list and have our players go through that emotional roller coaster and toll, and then having wanting to be explained to as to why they were protected or not protected. Maybe that's another benefit to, to being done with it early. Um, head scratchers. Yeah, I don't know if there's head scratchers. I mean, there's definitely some dares out there, huh? I mean, there's definitely some, you know, risk-reward moves that you could make. Um, I don't think any – I don't think I looked at anybody's list and was like, whoa, or wow, because I think you can justify a majority of the decisions that got made if you go through those teams. Um, there's certainly some people unprotected that I have to think that some of the, the teams that left those players unprotected certainly do not want to lose. I think back to when Portland lost uh, Shim and then turned around and traded to get her back like a week or two weeks later. So I think, you know, if you're Louisville, there's a lot of ways to game it. You know, I mean, if you feel comfortable with what you already have going on outside the expansion draft, you could certainly take some players knowing that the team's going to come to you to try to get them back and then see if you can increase the value of what you're looking for that way. Um, you could roll the dice on, on some of the bigger names on there. But, I mean, you certainly would have wanted to talk to them first and make sure you could try to sell them on your vision and what you want to do. Um, you know, there's allocation money involved now. So maybe you don't take any of those ones and get the 150 k to go sign 
one or two big time internationals. I mean, it'll be really interesting to see because there's some different layers this year to it. Um, but you know, the game, I, I personally enjoy the game theory stuff. So I think it's interesting. And that was the only disappointing thing is that I took myself out of all the game theory <laughs> stuff right away with the trade. Um, but it's still fun to pretend if I was this team, what would I do? Or if I was this team, what was I do? So I think Louisville certainly has some good players on the board that they can take both allocated and not allocated. Um, I think there's some other angles they could go as well. Maybe taking a player that they know the team's going to come try to get and then get more than just one player for it. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see maybe a player or two, they get taken off one or two teams that, are big players for them, but they didn't protect. How do they, how do they replace those players? You know, what's the plan to fill in for those players? So it's, uh, it's going to leave some question marks. I think it'll be fun, but I don't think any of the players, I didn't look at that list and we're like, Oh my gosh, how did you not protect this player? Why did you leave that player exposed? You know, I, I think you can make sound arguments for all the decisions that were made. If you know their teams. So looking forward, um, Pretty much everything you just said is is a good a good segue to the next topic of conversation because all of that stuff will will affect this. Um, we're not going to get into this too deeply. We'll save this for what is closer. But something that Arnhem brought up in in your guys's press conference after after the trade was the college draft and how there's a little bit of a question mark right now of timing for everything in terms of spring seasons um, for college for graduating seniors. Um, obviously. Chicago still has some very good draft picks um, to, to look at here. Um, I wanted your perspective because I know that you're very keyed into, you know, what's happening on the youth levels, what's happening on the college level, and get your perspective as someone who's now trying to figure out the value of those assets in a continuously uncertain timeline. Yeah. Well, so at the college draft um, – I don't think we still have a concrete date of when that's going to be. Um, I think the, you know, the big questions are eligibility for the players. When did they come? The college season that's being moved to the spring. How does that work? Um, so I think the simplest issue would be if, if the NCAA just tells the players for this year that they can enter the draft in January, but still keep their eligibility through the spring. That seems, that seems logically to be the simplest thing that could be done. Um, who knows if that will happen, by the way, but that would be easy. As far as the values of the picks, I mean, the picks are always going to be valuable. Um, if you have a draft and, I don't know, say Stanford's playing in the spring and all their kids decide to stay, the real question becomes, you know, based off your team, are you picking somebody that you think you need to come in and play for you right away? Or are you picking somebody that you're willing to wait until May or June to get? Um, and, and based off the, the forecasted schedules for next year, it may not matter until May or June to, to get those players in. Uh, but I don't think that the, the value of the picks or the price that I attach to them will change because at the end of the day, players are going to get picked into those spots. And in those picks that we have, they're going to be good players that get picked. And regardless if they come in January or if they come in May or if they come in June or what happens, they're going to come at some point. And I think that's the big thing with the picks is it's not a matter of what the value of the pick is. It's a matter of what the value of the pick is to each team. Do you need that person that you're going to pick to come into your team and contribute from day one? Or are you picking that person and have some time to gradually build them in the what you want to do? So if you go back to when we drafted 
Vanessa, Julie, um, Danny, Gilly, self, you know, we needed those five players to come in right away and play and fill big roles for us if we wanted to be competitive in the league. Whereas, you know, I don't think in the last two or three years that we felt that we had to have somebody in the draft come in right away to help us be successful in the field. Um, although Tierna certainly helps, but, you know, it wasn't a, an end-all be-all. It just worked out like that for us, and we're certainly happy that it did. So the price that I associate to the first-round picks sort of value if I was to trade them or put them on some sort of deal, um, I don't think those change because I know there's two or three teams that would pay a lot of allocation money to get some of them. I think it really just turns into who are you moving them to and what is the value of those picks to each team, and that's where it kind of varies. It'll be exciting to um... – to kind of get more into this with you when, uh, you know, obviously when the college draft looms closer and we'll probably reach out again and maybe do something uh, similar once the, the picture is a little more clear, but, but for now it's still technically um, off season, right. Uh, quote in quotation marks. We're putting that of course, cause soccer never sleeps, but uh, for you, uh, during this time right now, you'd mentioned that maybe you guys have a little bit of a, like a, a two week head start, although that's not really, a ton when it comes to the league, but uh, what is to close out? What exactly could you tell us that a head coach or GM maybe uh, goes through during this particular time of year? Like whether it's scouting, negotiating deals, maybe just trying to relax a little bit. And um, what are you looking to accomplish before opening day next year? Yeah, well, from the coaching standpoint, um, you know the players that's the players that are still here. I think are. Um, in the gym with, well, I don't think they're in the gym with mega. So they're still, they're still on a, a routine through the week, uh, what they do on their own and then strength. You know, we really couldn't do a lot of lifting during the season because we couldn't get in any gyms anywhere and we couldn't use the facility at the stadium because the fire was in there um, just because of COVID. So those guys are playing catch up a bit, a bit in their weightlifting programs. Uh, each of the coaches has been tasked with something that they need to do basically have till January 1 to get it done of things that we think will be important for us heading into the next year. Uh, GM hat, GM hat, talking to other teams, seeing who's available, seeing what's out there, seeing if what we think we need is actually in the league. And if it's in the league, is it something that we can acquire or is it somewhere we're going to have to go somewhere else to try to find it? Um, and then just trying to, to keep up with, you know, what's going on with the other teams. And all I mean by that is potential trades, you know, who, Louisville is obviously going to become a Midwest rival. How are they building their team? Who are they bringing in? Um, you know, who is Seattle and Portland discovered this week? And what international are they going after? And um, just that kind of stuff, you know. But personally, for the last two weeks, I've been hanging out with the kids, you know, it was a long time in Utah to be gone with them and then you're still into the grind. So not having to get up and leave every morning, making breakfast, you know, spending some time with the, the kids, watching my daughter play a few games. That's been fun. A little bit different experience than watching the Red Stars play. So just trying to, to get on with it a bit, recharge, re-energize, because although this season was short and different, um, it was easily the most emotionally draining season that I've had as a coach in this league because there were so many different things to deal with and a majority of them had nothing to do with actually playing soccer. Uh, but yeah, just to recharge and 
keep the vision of where we want to go and the plan of how we're going to get there and make sure everybody's doing their responsibilities to get us there. Rory, um, I'm just going to take the time to, to outro us here. And I, I really do appreciate you taking some of that longer <laughs> deserved time off and spending it with us. Um, we always love when you come on on and, uh, you know, appreciate your candor, your honesty and, and your time that you spend with us. Uh, everyone, uh, we always get great feedback whenever we get you on in the episodes and um, appreciate your insights as always. And uh, we're going to cut you loose. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. <laughs>